Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukier, senior editor and host of Babbage. This week on Babbage, we delve into the darkest areas of physics, black holes, and the information paradox that they present. First, let's hear from the main character in this story, the physicist and cosmologist Stephen Hawking. Professor Hawking first suggested the new theory at a conference at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm last year. Classically, a black hole is independent of its past history. I shall assume this is also true in the quantum domain. How then can a black hole emit the information about the particles that fell in? The answer, I propose, is that the information is stored in a supertranslation of the horizon that the incoming particles caused. But before we return to the mysteries of our universe, we turn to a more earthly concern, sunburn. A team of researchers have developed a sensor that changes color when it's time to apply more sunscreen. With me to explain the issue is Matt Kaplan, a science correspondent. Matt, you have good news for those who turn as red as lobsters. What's going on this week? So if you've spent a lot of time on the beach, then you know that one of the worst parts about wearing sunscreen is you don't know when it's worn off until it's already too late and you're already going lobster thermidor, as it were. So this team of researchers speculated they might be able to create some sort of a simple compound that you might be able to put into a piece of paper or a bit of film that you could stick on your skin like a plaster to monitor how much UV light you've been exposed to and give you a warning of some sort to tell you, hey, look, it's time to reapply sunscreen. Okay, and so what have they done? How have they created this sensor? Well, what they did was they they looked at a compound that's found in sunscreen already called titanium dioxide. Titanium dioxide, aside from being really good at absorbing UV light, also functions as a disinfectant, which was the aspect of the titanium dioxide they got really interested in because as it gets bombarded by UV light, it sheds electrons. Those electrons react with oxygen and hydrogen in the surrounding environment and form free radicals, which kill bacteria. But they also have an added benefit. The researchers speculated that those free radicals might interact with food dyes and cause them to break down and change color. And therein lies the kernel of the idea that they ended up going with. Okay, so what does that mean? It changes color. Why is that useful to us? If you were to take an inkjet printer, which is what they did, and you put a cartridge of titanium dioxide solution into it, and then you were to take a a cartridge of, let's say, blue food coloring. You could then inkjet them together onto a single piece of paper and stick that piece of paper into the sunlight or under a UV lamp as they did. And what happens is the titanium dioxide absorbs the UV light. It releases electrons, creates free radicals, and those free radicals, the researchers guessed, would cause the dye to break down and cease to be blue. 
Sure enough, they monitored it, and the blue started to fade away into a yellow color. They also found that green turned into red, but if you've got male color blindness, that's not so useful. So they decided to go with the blue-yellow shift instead. Okay, so if I'm on a beach and it's hot and I've got sunscreen on, how does this help me? How would this be applied? The real crux of this, and this is the the tricky bit, you'd put it onto your skin and you would go out into the sun after applying sunscreen and you would monitor this film to see whether it had gone yellow from blue. And it would fade over time. And the more it faded, the more vulnerable you're becoming and the more your sunscreen is worn off. But there's another aspect to this that really needed some mathematical computation. They needed to adjust it for how much pigmentation you have in your skin and what kind of sunscreen you've also applied. So, for example, if you're really dark-skinned and you apply SPF 50 sunscreen you're very unlikely to burn for many, many hours. You need the time delay between it shifting from blue to yellow to be five, six hours because that's how long it's going to take before that sunscreen wears off. But if you're really fair-skinned and you're wearing SPF 15, they needed to be able to create a film that would go from blue to yellow relatively quickly. So here's the rub. They took a UV filter, various types of UV filters that either filtered 1.5% of the UV light or as much as 70% of the UV light and stuck it over the piece of paper, which controlled how much UV light the titanium dioxide was getting exposed to and thus controlled how many electrons got shed and caused all the damage to the dye and caused it to change color. How big a problem is this? Because the alternative is just to slather on more sun cream from time to time. Well, sun cream isn't exactly cheap. So there is that. But also you have to think about this coming from the research group's perspective. These folks are based in Sydney where you've got a whole bunch of fair-skinned folks sitting under an enormous amount of ultraviolet light. So in Australia suffers from a very large sun issue because of so many skin cancers developing in the area. So it's a government-oriented issue of let's see how much protection we can give people and make sure people are being aware of how much exposure they've had. So do you actually think that this is going to go from the lab into practice that in, say, two or three years, people will be buying these little, almost like plasters, and sticking it on them to get a sense of when they need to... Based upon this early research, it seems like an entirely viable idea. But, you know, you run into so many stumbling blocks between basic research and actual practical application. Only time is going to tell with this. So we got to watch and wait I'm giving them a few years, but certainly the principle of it, saying, look, we can use an inkjet printer, do this stuff for cheap, seems seems fair enough. And what happens when people have these suntan lines of the plaster that they've applied on themselves? People are going to be very upset. There's going to be product liability issues. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe supermodels can stick it onto their, their swimsuits or something else. Although I guess supermodels aren't wearing swimsuits, are they? Not on the Cote d'Azur. But I wouldn't <laughs> know I'm here in the office. <laughs> Matt, thanks a lot for joining us this week. No problem. And to all of our listeners, don't forget, if you have anything to say about this week's show, you can email us at radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. On last week's show, we looked at a machine which combines 3D printing with traditional craftsmanship to, quote-unquote, print a motorbike. One listener tweeted, open source the parts. This is the future of self-guided transportation. On Facebook, Craig Massner said, 30% lighter and 150% uglier. Form should follow function, but this is going a step too far. Adam Ellie wrote, They could still cover it with plastic carbon fiber, and it would look like a regular bike. Thank you for those comments. We look forward to more thoughts on social media for this week's show. 
Next, we travel beyond the sun to black holes. With me on this space odyssey is Ananya Bhattacharya, our science correspondent, who is going to help navigate the paradox of black holes, in fact, the information paradox of black holes. Stephen Hawking of Cambridge University has dedicated himself to uncovering the secrets of black holes. In the 1970s, he was certain that nothing could escape them once the so-called event horizon had passed. The event horizon of a black hole is the point of no return. Hawking uses the image of a canoe going over Niagara Falls. The closer you get to the fall, the more the current pulls you. If you paddle fast enough, you can escape. But when you first reach the drop, there is no turning back. Ananyo, you're writing about Hawking's newest theory for this week's issue. First, let's start with the basics. What is a black hole? A black hole is created by a really heavy object, usually a dying star, and this basically causes a deep, deep depression in space, in space-time. And that means it starts sort of sucking and pulling everything around it. Beyond a certain point called the event horizon, nothing can escape its dramatic pull, not even light. So then what is the information paradox of black holes? So the information paradox relates to this work that Hawking was doing in the, in the 70s. At the time, they thought black holes just got bigger and bigger and bigger as they sucked in more and more stuff. Hawking realized that wasn't the case. He found that they could, in theory, just evaporate away, uh, taking all of the information that they held about the stuff that they'd sucked into their core with it. Okay, and what's the problem? There's lots of problems with that. Um, the most important problem is that in physics, the idea is if you understand a system completely, then you can use physical laws to predict where it's going to end up and where it was in the past. Now, if information just can go missing willy-nilly, then suddenly physics doesn't apply anymore. You've got a problem. You've lost. You've broken determinism. Okay, that sounds pretty serious if we've broken determinism and causality. What do we do about this? This is why physicists have been scratching their head about this problem for 40 years. It's kind of ugly. For Hawking's maths was completely watertight. People have been coming up with solutions, but nothing that has become widely accepted. Every solution broke one or other law of general relativity or quantum mechanics. As far as I've understood, Hawking radiation plays a part in this story. Can you tell us what it is? What Hawking realized was that at the level of the vacuum, in, in really small distances where quantum mechanics comes into play, uh, the vacuum isn't really this flat, uneventful surface. It's actually boiling with activity. So you've got little pairs of particles that are just popping in and out of existence. And most of the time, these sort of particles will annihilate each other. Right? But what Hawking realized is if they appear on the boundary of a black hole on the event horizon, one gets sucked in and the other one um, is set free into the universe and wanders off. It sounds to me that the way that physicists speak of information is different than the way that ordinary people refer to information. What is information to a physicist? So what physicists are talking about here is actually not that different. Imagine if you threw a plastic chair into a black hole and then um, you followed that up with a wooden chair of about the same mass. Now, you naively expect, you know, we understand the difference between those two things. What they're saying is, actually, if you throw them into a black hole, there's no way to tell the difference anymore. And that's, that's the crux of the problem. That explains it perfectly for me. <laughs> Thank God. So what is Hawking's latest theory? Hawking and his collaborators now think 
that when objects fall into a black hole, um, they leave a little bit of information behind them on the event horizon. Now, that takes the form of something that are known as soft particles. These are photons, which are the particles of light, and gravitons, which are supposed to be responsible for gravity. But the key thing about soft particles is they have almost no energy. How does this then undo the paradox? So every time an object falls in, they find by uh, some laws of conservation, they leave behind some of these particles. And you can get, using some fancy mathematics, from the number and distribution of those particles, you can draw some conclusions about what's fallen in. What they've managed to do is show that not all the information about the object is lost if a black hole evaporates away. They've just shown that it is, in theory, possible to recover some of it. Okay, so you mentioned soft particles. Well, we know that John Wheeler, the famous physicist, has said that black holes are, quote-unquote, bald. And Hawking is contradicting him by saying that black holes have hair. I don't know. What do they mean? So uh, what Wheeler's talking about when he says that black holes have no hair, that they're bald, is that essentially from the outside, they're pretty featureless. There's only a few fundamental characteristics that we can know about a black hole. You've got their charge, how fast they spin, and their mass, right? What Hawking is now saying with his collaborators is that actually they do have hair, as in characteristics that you can see. Now, he calls it soft hair because um, the soft particles don't have any energy. So it's a bit of a cheat, really. They do have something more than the just the three things that John Wheeler thought all black holes should have. And so how does that relate to the new theory? The soft particles themselves that are storing this information is what Hawking refers to as soft hair. Right. That's, that's all there is. So, Got it. Uh, yeah. Are there any skeptical voices, or, do, or is this being accepted? The skepticism is mostly that, look, this is not an answer to the paradox. What we have at best is perhaps a promising way forward. You know, Hawking and his collaborators, you know, they think he, for 40 years he has knocked back every possible solution that's been proposed. And he seems to have a lot of confidence in this. It's not entirely his idea, um, but some of the initial work was done by Andrew Strominger, one of his collaborators. But it's fabulous that he's still around to sort of shepherd the idea that puts a dent in his own theory. Absolutely. And uh, yet Hawking and uh, his collaborators would be the first to admit that there's years of work ahead. Strominger said that he had over 30 different problems scribbled on his blackboard, and they had to now work through them one at a time. And that is going to be a task of years. I don't know. Thank you very much. As clear as always. (laughs) Yes, thanks, Ken. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, pick up the latest issue of The Economist, where you can find Ananio and Matt's articles, or visit economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.